You're listening to the Scottish Football Forums podcast, the home of Scottish football banter. Hello, welcome to Season 10, Episode 31 of Scottish Football Forums podcast. I'm John and I'm our latest guest instalment. We are joined by um, the former... Um, sports editor of the Scot- Scottish Sun and former CEO, now a coach out in Canada, Ian King. Ian, welcome along. How are you? Welcome, John. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. No problem. It's not been a, a bad week in terms of Scottish football. Yes, the Nations League wasn't great, but the main thing was this time last Thursday, or around about this time last Thursday, a 22-year itch finally yeah. got off our backs. Absolutely. Uh, I, I think um, really different for me, I think, but I was in uh, the Stade de France for the opener luckily enough working for the Sunday Mail at the time at France 98 and then last Thursday I was on a patio in Toronto at my local pub and it was about two degrees above freezing <laughs> and I was the only guy there on my laptop uh, just sitting watching the game and just thinking how things had changed in 22 years but no, to see them get over the line was uh, was unbelievable I thought they were terrific I mean uh, the last two games have been disappointing to be honest but like um at least we're there, you know, at least we're there and hopefully we get a good draw in the World Cup uh, qualifiers come December. But I think when you're away from home, you, you actually become a lot more patriotic. So I'm actually sitting here doing a Zoom with my uh, North American Scottish Coaches Association zipper on. Uh, so that's that's what I went to the pub that day. It's my lucky jersey now. So now I'm delighted to see them there. And I think uh, Steve Clark's done a terrific job. So happy to see them qualified again for sure. Yeah, especially given the fact that when he first came in, you know, they had Cyprus in his first game and then the next four were Belgium and Russia and you saw the level that they were above us. A lot of people um, get carried away and panicked. He didn't. And thank goodness that he didn't because the the transformation has been uh, terrific. It's been it's been slow progress, but it's been progress. And now we've, we've got over the line something that other managers couldn't do in the past 22 years. Yeah, I think fair play and particularly for, you know, Obviously, I still follow all the like podcasts like your own and like the BBC Scottish Football Podcast and and stuff like that to to keep up to date uh, from home. And this, he was getting slaughtered about the back three, if we're being honest. And I don't think, and I still think, you know, there's still evidence there if about McTominay at right centre back, like the last minute goal in Serbia, and he got he basically got done yesterday against Israel at, at the goal as well. But he offers so much coming forward, and I think that's why he's in there. You know, like to pass it, yeah. he's passing out of defence is terrific. I thought he was actually really good in the game yesterday. But it was just those little moments when he, when something happens at right centre back, and people look at it and go, "He's a midfielder." You know, why is he picking him? But I think he's done a great job. And the way for me, there's been some great stories. You know, Andy Considine's a terrific story, and covered him a lot. Obviously, when I was when I was working in the press in Scotland, and just I think for guys like him to get. A long overdue cap, I thought, uh, and and play so well. You know, probably unlucky to get dropped for Tierney, but you're getting dropped for a 25 million pound player who's who's playing left centre back in the Premiership, so you can probably handle it at 33. But uh, I just thought like, the way people are now slotting into the system is really good. And he's he's Steve can be a bit doer. He's a bit of a nightmare to interview. To be honest, getting a line out of Steve when you were a journalist wasn't the easiest thing, but. Uh, that's not what he's there for. He's not there to entertain us in press conferences. He's there to set up the team properly, and he's done a great job. 
Exactly. Um, in your 15 years at the the Sun, when you were an editor, you would have been dying to have the, you know, the the specials at Scotland's um, at at the Euros at the World Cup. Doesn't happen. You leave five years later. They're there. That must be off a wee bit. <laughs> well, the one thing I think we had, uh, funnily enough, we do a lot of kind of zooms out here with with guys from home, um, and we had Craig Brown on recently with the with the North American Scottish coaches and. Uh, it was terrific, you know. Nice plug to your podcast. Exactly. <laughs> uh, no, it's not even it's, it's just an internal one. We do. I, we should do something with it. Actually, now that you mentioned it, yeah. but uh, he was on it and he was great. You know, eighty years old, uh, and I was lucky enough to be reporting at Euro '96 and at France '98. Uh, and I remember then, you know, you just thought, oh, we just keep qualifying. You know, this is how life is. Uh, my son was born in 1996, and I, you know, he was two years old at France '98, and he's never. Basically, in his conscious life, he's never seen them in a major final. So you, I just never thought of France 98 that night in Sinetti, and which was a horrible night when we lost 3-0 in Morocco, that, that that would be the last time in a major finals. It just never crossed your mind, you know. But uh, terrific that we're back. And uh, listen, you should enjoy it next summer. You know, hopefully everyone's back in the Tartan Army's back in the stadiums. It's great that took the two of the games are at Hamden. Uh, that might just be a, a return ticket home, I think, for that one. Yeah, let, let's hope I <laughs> join the queue, Ian. Um, well, as a Scotland Supporters Club member, um, yeah. I certainly hope that I'm getting uh, hold of those tickets for Hamden and Wembley. I was just need to wait and see Hams. Craig, Craig's a great guy. We interviewed, well, I interviewed him as part of my special um, preview in the game. He just, he just doesn't change. You know, he's always got um, some great stories to tell, and he always brings up the Jim Leighton um, 42 clean sheets and 91 caps. I think it's a great start. Um, I'm delighted. I'm delighted for him because he told me. I'm going to look at the Tartan Scarf um, when we qualify, so um, he's desperate to be there with the Tartan Army himself. Yeah, no, one of, one of uh, life's great guys, you know, and uh, such an intelligent guy and passionate and everything about, about Scotland, and uh, we underestimate the job that guys like him and Roxburgh did, you know, like just because I think for a lot of people inside football, they look upon them as teachers or, you know, not quite cut from the same cloth as true football men like Walter or or Gordon Strachan or whatever, but they were they were both Roxburgh and Brown, both terrific coaches, terrific coaches. Yeah, definitely. And they're the last two that have obviously got us through. They're the only ones that have qualified us for Euros as well. Um, so they definitely deserve more respect than I think some people give them. Um, but on to yourself now. Um, the so before you you got in um, to the, the side, that's where you really made your name. Just tell us a little bit about your journey and the um, the type of jobs that you ended up doing before you got that um, elevation 2000? Uh, I graduated from Napier, well, it's now Napier University in 1985 uh, with my, it was then a higher national diploma in journalism but it's now, uh, I later went back as a mature student and completed it in a degree at University of Western Scotland um, when I was, I was teaching there actually uh, a few years back. And I studied in the afternoon as a, the oldest student in town and basically completed the, to make it into a degree. With a view actually to coming here because North America, you, 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 you struggle to get a job in North America unless you've, got a, unless you've actually got a degree. So that was part of my thinking, to be honest, going back. Uh, but when I went back, I graduated in 85, uh, did the usual local newspaper route. Uh, I started at the Kaluk and Lanark Gazette um, as a basically cover everything. I used to do like cattle shows, council, and then I did the sport, which was like, uh, and at the time, 
for maybe one season I was still playing. So uh, I was playing at Thornybridge United in the Central West Second Division, I think. We were legends in that. Like, it was like great, great, uh, great club. Loved it. It's in View Park in Uddingston. Uh, I became friendly there with guys that are still still stay in touch with Lindsay Hamilton who played for Rangers was was our goalkeeper. Yeah. He uh, played for St Johnson, didn't he? St Johnson, yep, St Johnson and uh signed for Rangers from from St Johnson. He, he was a terrific goalie and ended up we had him at Airdrie as goalie coach as well. Like the, the, the link stayed all the way through. Great guy, Lindsay, brilliant guy. And uh so I was still playing a little bit and then eventually the the journalism became too important and I had to like report on Saturdays and I moved to the Ardrossan and Solcoats Herald as a sports editor there, and that was when I started doing shifts at the Nationals. I started doing shifts at the Daily Record, Sunday Mail, um, and, then, and then at the Sun. And then that was just the kind of paving of the way to the, the national newspapers, which was every kind of ambitious young journalist wanted to do at that point. So I was basically working during the day, and then I would get the train up from Ardrossan and do a shift on the sports desk subbing, uh, sub-editing, at night at the sun and then that was the way in and I was always kind of basically begging them for a job as a writer uh, and actually the sun went, the sun rated me as a kind of sub-editor and page designer type thing uh, but I wanted to write and so I left to be honest I left for the Sunday Mail in 94 uh, had five great years there Euro 96 France 98 unbelievable terrific uh, as chief football writer and then got the chance to go back to the sun in, in 2000 and that was me so that was me basically until uh the world cup in berlin world cup final in berlin in 2006 was my last game as a writer and I, I got promoted to head of sport then and uh that was that so it was great i, I got to go to for a guy from the murray and east Kilbride, i got to go to a lot of unbelievable games and uh, tournaments and I think I did one in a show and tell from one of my kids classes at one point and I'd been to 66 different countries and I thought <laughs> covering football, which uh, which was pretty good. When you looked at it, it was good when they split up all those countries like Latvia and, and Estonia and all that, all these different places. You know, I got to all these places uh, for games that you won't, nah, you'll never forget all that. You know, some terrific memories. Yeah, they are um, amazing memories. It just tell us about some of the biggest challenges that you, you face, you know, to get, the, um, you know, the best stories. I think like, uh, like any business and it's probably the same in coaching now like I mean the most important thing is trust you know and, and certainly with, with people like um, you know Walter Smith or Tommy Burns who were massive figures in my career you know like Tommy God rest his soul was like one of the the nicest uh, men I've ever met in, so- in football you know and I was going to call it soccer there I got slaughtered for that uh, remember your audience uh, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, and Walter was obviously a huge figure at Rangers at the time. And, and those guys became like kind of key parts of my journalistic life. But Walter, um, when I was younger, like one of the, the hardest kind of lessons that I ever learned, I always remember Ken Gallagher, who, who was a legendary kind of writer for the, the Herald and various other uh, papers. And he said to me, he was a good like mentor for me, Kenny. And he said to me, listen, son, I always remember one of, sometimes the best stories are the ones that you never write. And I never understood what he meant, really. It was, and it was more about you'll learn some stuff, you'll see some stuff, you'll hear some stuff, but don't write it, and you'll get a better story down the line if you have the, you know, if you have the trust of the guy 
who might be giving you that story. That was the kind of point of it. And I remember after, uh, it was funny when I was watching Neil Lennon have that week recently, uh, where he lost three games in a week or whatever, after the, the old firm game. And then, you know, they, they struggled in Europe or whatever. And I remember back to 94, uh, and Walter was in charge at Rangers. And they lost to Falkirk in the League Cup. Uh, lost to AEK Athens on the Wednesday night, I think, in Europe. Yeah. Uh, and they lost to Celtic in a, an old firm game, all at home, all at Ibrox. I remember in, that. In the space of a week. And, um, you know, it was like, obviously that doesn't happen very often. And uh, after the European game, uh, I speak, of, I sp- no, not so great now, but which is ironic given I'm in Canada and it's bilingual, but my French at that, at, that level, at that point was pretty good. And I got friendly with Basil Bolly. And after the European game, Basil Bolly had been played at right back. And uh, Duncan Fergus, they were trying to shoehorn Duncan Ferguson into the team, but Haitley was still there. And Haitley was centre forward. Duncan Ferguson played outside left. So a lot of, I'm sure a lot of Rangers fans will remember that night. And they lost at home, they lost home and away to AK Athens, crashed out of Europe. And uh, I spoke to Bolly after the game and he said, you know, speak to me. And I was like, oh, so I go and speak. And he says, come and see me tomorrow. Uh, Cameron House, I will give you a story. And I'm like, oh, okay, no problem. So I went out, John, and, and needless to say, he wasn't impressed at playing right back. He'd scored the winning goal in the Champions League final the year before, centre-half for Marseille. He wasn't impressed that he was playing right full-back. And he slaughtered the tactics, slaughtered the tactics, slaughtered uh, Duncan Ferguson, called him the tallest outside left in world football, <laughs> and, then, and then slaughtered the fact that he had to go to training and a, a collar and tie and all that and said, what does this matter? Why do I have to wear a collar and tie to training? Everything. You know, just basically let go. And I was, I remember turning the tape recorder off and thinking, wow, you know, like, because no one at that point ever broke ranks and had a go at Walter or anything like that. And I thought, I've got it right this, you know, it's such a good interview. I went back, told my boss at the Sunday Mail, Jim Cassidy at the time, who was my editor and told the sports editor, George Chain, and they were delighted, you know, that was the front page, back page, two pages inside. And we ran it on the Sunday. And I remember it was day off. Sunday was your day off, obviously, because it was publication day. And we had the old-fashioned kind of half-brick mobile phones. <laughs> and <laughs> I had like eight missed calls by from Walter by about nine o'clock in the morning. And I was honestly, I was sitting there, pardon, pardon my language, I was shitting myself. I'm saying, oh, my God, you know, what's going to happen here? And uh, I thought, I'll leave it. It's my day off. And the last message, he left a voice message, which he never did. He said, I suggest you get your arse in here at Ibrooks. Uh, first thing Monday morning. I don't care if it's your day off. Get your arse in here at Ibrooks or you'll never get another story out of this club. And I was like, oh. And I went in, you know. And honestly, I don't know if it's still the same, but Peter Peter was the commissioner at Ibrooks who always lets you in at the front door and all yeah. that. And you're in, you're walking in the marble halls. And Peter just shook his head at me. You know, Peter was a great guy. He was one of these guys you'd know who'd always kind of tip you off maybe sometimes for transfer stories or whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's just shaking his head at me. And he's like, Kingy, 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 what have you done? <laughs> and he, the next thing I know from the kind of right-hand side of the, the hall, Walter comes barreling out and he goes, my office, you! And I'm, I'm like, oh, no. I kind of go across. And honestly, Johnny was shouting at me all the way down the corridor in, in my face. And he's going, Basil, Bolly, Basil. Bolly, you know, and, and he's screaming at me and all that, and I can feel his breath in my face, and I'm like, I'm trying to defend myself, saying, you know, I don't work for you. I, I said, don't you shut your mouth, I'm talking to you. And, oh, jeez, I know, you're absolutely 
honestly, I was pilloried from like, like all down the corridor. And then he says, sit down. And then I went into his office and he said, sit down. And then he said, no, don't sit down because you'll not be staying. And I'm like, oh my God. And he says, you're banned. That's it. He says, you should go back and think about that. You know, if you'd had the decency, I'm not caring about the interview, but if you'd had the decency to tell me before that you were doing it and it was going into the paper, then I wouldn't have choked in my cornflakes on Sunday morning. <laughs> and, I was like, <laughs> and I'm like, right, right. And he goes, I wait and think about it. You're banned for two weeks. And that was me. You know, I had to go back and say, to the Sunday Mail, I'm not allowed in. You know, like I couldn't go. Well, I'm, I'm pretty sure I had a massive game that weekend, and and I was I was banned. I was like basically had my press rights taken away for two weeks, and uh, and about the twelfth day of the ban, he kind of invited me back into training, and he said, he said uh, you learn some manners or whatever, and I was I was like, well, if I get another story like that, I'll tell you, but I'm not telling you that I'm not going to write it, and he's like. He said, well, I respect that. That's fine. He said, but if I respect that, then you respect me. And I was like, right. And that was it. And luckily enough, like we had him on one of these Zooms a bit. So he's still talking to me. So it was like, uh, it went all right after that. But it was a, uh, it was a lesson learned, I would say. Yeah. Sounds like Chet Young got, uh, got a little flightly for the interview. He did at the same time, <laughs> which is legendary to this day. Um <laughs> the Brian Ledger can effing play. I think that is absolutely uh, no. hilarious. Um, so you obviously um, at, at the Sun um, now. The Sun obviously, uh, I know the Scottish Sun. Um, there was a bit of a reputation. Um, a lot of people had a reputation about the Sun because of Hillsborough and the stories discussing. Let's let's cost me the spade here. It was discussing. So from your point of view, as a as chief sports writer, then um, head of sport. How do you go about fighting off that reputation to say um, we're actually not that as bad as, or, or we're different from the, the our competitors, our, our sister paper down south? I think the paper always tried to kind of like, you know, it went from zero here. When I started there, obviously you had zero sales and then decided they were going to have a Scottish edition. And at first I thought they were kind of, it was tokenism. You know, at first I thought, you know, they're just basically trying to dress it up, put a bit of tartan on it and sell the same product. But then they really committed to it and they invested in it, uh, particularly on the sports side. And I think the sports side became, if you like tabloid sports journalism, which obviously I did, and it, like you know, I think a lot of the the quality of writing in tabloid sports journalism gets underrated. You know, like a lot of really really good writers uh, who know the game, and you know, like obviously part of your your job as a tabloid sports writer is to get the exclusives and get the big stories and break transfer stories and all that. There's also a lot of good writing and match reports and stuff like that in tabloid papers that I think gets under gets underrated a bit. But we tried to, once they started really investing in it, we tried to differentiate the two products. You know, like from, like obviously we knew there was like a massive, you can't do anything about like, like I, I completely agree with you, you know, like about the Hillsborough coverage and everything, but you, you can't, we separated the two right down to the fact that we would we would basically support different, political parties and, and elections from the, the English version, you know, like we backed Labour, they backed the SNP at one point and stuff like that. So they, they differentiated like, it like that. And and basically the sales, we set a target when we started it to overtake the daily record. And I always thought it was like pie in the sky, couldn't happen in Scotland because I'd grown up like a daily record reader. My dad bought the daily record, um, you know, daily record Sunday Mail were the two staples of things that, I, that came out of my house. A working class household in East Kilbride, that was what we bought. And um, to overtake them, you know, we said, I remember setting a target of 
400, we set a target of 400,000 sales. And then we did that. And then you had the record in your sights, you know, because I thought I think there was probably a lot of complacency at the record because of the brand leader. He basically saw themselves as the kind of newspaper version of Iron Brew. You know, it was like a, it was a national brand as far as they were concerned. But but they, they didn't wake up to long enough, you know, to the fact that, you know, we were getting a lot of advertising, we were getting a lot of sales. You know, we were the new kid in the block. There was a bit, I thought there was a bit more of a sense of humour about us, you know, like like if when we were doing stuff, we would have a bit. And, and then in newspapers, it's all about stories, right? You break, start breaking big stories. You start getting people, and there'll never be a bigger story than Mo Johnson signing for Angels, you know, and obviously the sun broke it. So, like, when, when that happened, you know, I remember sitting next to uh, Alec Cameron. <laughs> Remember we were in the press conference and Alec Cameron had convinced, God rest his soul, lovely, a great guy, chief, a brilliant guy, but uh, he convinced himself that it was John Sheridan right up to the, I don't know if you remember John Sheridan, Sheffield Wednesday. I, I do remember, I remember John Sheridan, yeah. So, uh, there, was obviously the, there was obviously a tale that eventually started to break and we had, the night before, we had we broke it in the morning, you know, as soon as was, uh, soon as was the source for that story and uh we had an eight-page special. We had front page, back page, more signs for jails. And I just remember absolute chaos, you know, like absolute chaos. Uh, people scamp, scampering around the other papers trying to find out if it was true. And I don't know what they thought we were doing. If like, like we were, were we going to do an eight-page special if it wasn't right? But it was <laughs> it was like we knew it was right and we knew he was signing. And uh, we did an eight-page pull. I remember on front page, back page, pieces inside. And on, honestly, right up to the end, I remember Alex Cameron looking at the floor and saying, John Sheridan, it's John Sheridan. John Sheridan's going to walk in. And then obviously Mo walked in beside Sunis and just like, you'll never get a bigger, a bigger story like that. And big stories like that make a difference, right? I, I think that kind of, that was the kind of story that announced the Sun in Scot- the Sun as a, as a separate entity in, in Scottish football. Yeah, that must have been big at that time because that's obviously in 89, the same year of um, the Hillsborough disaster. Um, yeah. And then 11 years later, um, the Super Cali go blessed Celtic atrocious headline. Yeah. That must have boosted your sales a good bit. Uh-huh. Brilliant. You know, like the guy, like, uh, there was a kind of, there was a strange one. I was in, at work that night, we're in, and um, there's a, a sub editor called Paul Hickson who that's his name. basically came up with it. And, uh, Hickle was a great, great sub. Great sub. He used to go and do games on a Saturday as well, like championship games and stuff like that, but principally a, a, a sub-editor. Uh, and I'm trying to think at that point. At that point, I think I was reporting in the game. Uh, and we'd often, like my sports editor, there was a guy called Steve Wilsoncroft, who was like a savage boss, brilliant journalist, terrific journalist. And, uh, but never, he would always describe it as, you know, if someone got a, a defeat like that, he would say, like, let's get the tackies on it, meant put the boot into the manager, basically. And obviously, John Barnes was at, was at Celtic at the time. And uh, and he never, like, I remember them called, that was the dream ticket, if you remember, Barnes and Douglas, and, and it just never yes. worked. It never worked. And uh, the original headline is actually a Liverpool headline. It's, uh, and it, it was on Ian Callaghan. And the original headline, uh, it's actually slightly plagiarised. The original headline is, was in the 70s, Ian Callaghan scored a hat-trick for Liverpool against QPR, and the headline was, Super Cali scores a hat-trick, QPR atrocious. <laughs> and it was actually like, and that was the headline, and I was like, and we'd always talked about it, and then 
obviously it happened that night and Hickle had it in his head and it became super Cali globalistic Celtic are atrocious and you know like that went round the world obviously like stuff like that you know but that's what I'm saying about a sense of humour like I think we had like we had like a, even in dark times I think we had a, it was certainly a lot of fun working there put it that way yeah, definitely. I mean, personally, from that night, I remember listening to that game, being delighted that um, Cali Thistle won because Aberdeen beat St Murn in a cup replay the same night, and we were playing the winner of that game, and I was glad it was Cali, because <laughs> Celtic gave us a few thumpings that season under Epsco, Dalgod, Resi Soul, um, so yeah, that was definitely legendary, and you, you did it... Um, you did a lot of stuff for the famous Tottenham magazine as well at that point, um, which, you know, the Paris trip, um, you know, is iconic to this day. The bus and um, the Neve Jennings in her um, solitaire dress. That must have been brilliant to be involved in. Yeah, absolutely. And I think at that time, for us, it was good because I had, uh, that time's obviously Faddy, you know, like a, a lot around Faddy. And I had a really good relationship with James because um, at one point he's, his agent was uh, Rab McKinnon, who played for Scotland, uh, three three caps for Scotland, play, played for Hearts, Motherwell, 20 Enschkeda. Actually went to 20 Enschkeda the same season that from from Motherwell on a Bosman that Lambert went to Borussia Dortmund. Mm. So I was really, Rab was one of my best mates from childhood. We played for the same team in East Kilbride uh, all the way up. So we've been best mates, played in the same team from nine until 18. So he's one of my best mates. And then, I got to know James through him. Uh, James trusted me enough to be the guy that he phoned when he went missing. I don't know if you remember him going missing in Hong Kong. Yes. Barry was the manager. I remember. Yeah. <laughs> so he missed his flight and everything, and then I phoned him, and I was like, I always remember it because we'd had a night out, and uh, we were in uh, one of the districts of Hong Kong called the Wang Chai, I think it's called, and, and uh, all the boys were in there in nightclubs and, and all that. Well, and the players were out and everything, everybody was out together. We just had a magnificent 4-0 victory against Hong Kong. <laughs> if you look back, look, look back at the 11 that played that day, honestly, I don't think they even recognise the caps. It's not, it's not an act. Warren Cummings played and Scott Gemmell. And it was like, honestly, it was a uh, Scott Gemmell played and, and Scott Gemmell may have been the captain. Aye, uh, Scott Dobby and Kevin Kyle. Dobby, oh, Kevin Kyle. Was that, was that pinch, remember the pinstripe shots? It was that. Oh, the feel of your, yeah, that was bad. Oh, <laughs> And I just remember looking out and they were playing, we beat this uh, team of Hong Kong. Like, like, I was like, I couldn't believe it. I was like, is this really an international? But it, it turned out it wasn't. They didn't recognise it. But we won 4-0 anyway. And uh, and then we played uh, official games in South Korea and stuff like that on that tour. But uh, Faddy, Faddy got lost. <laughs> and, then, and I remember phoning him at the airport. And uh, I said, where are you? You know, we're going on a we're going on a plane to get a career, and the, the press were flying with the team. And he's like, I've just woke up. He's like, I don't know where I am. <laughs> I was like, Are you in the team hotel? And he's like, No. And he's like, At this point, I don't know if he had the red stripe through the hair and all that. And he's like, 18 years old and 19 years. I'll go, I'll go, James. We're literally about to get on the flight, and he's like nearly tears and everything, you know. And, he, and, I, and he's like, Don't tell him, they don't tell him, they, you know. And unbeknown to Willie McDougall, the security guy, he's saying to me, uh, oh, uh, James is fine, James is fine, he's just coming and all that. And I'm thinking, I've just spoken to him, there's no chance he's making the flight, you know. And, and eventually, uh, I think Tommy Burns was on that tour, actually, as an assistant coach. Yeah. And TB, TB came to me and he said, you know he's missing, don't you? And I was like, yep. He said, you're going to write it? And I was like, yep. <laughs> <laughs> 
I said, but we'll do it the right way. I said, let's let's get on the flight and we'll do it from the other side. And I said, and I'll do it with an interview with James. And he was like, good, good. And Tommy always called you son. He's like, good son, good, good. He's like, that's honourable son, do it that way. And we did it. And rather than write a story saying Faddy's missing and all that kind of stuff, I, I did a I'm sorry story when we got to the other side. And uh, we did it with James from the other side. But it was uh, aye, good times. It was good times, that. That's brilliant, and uh, he obviously goes on to um, have a really good Scotland career. I know some iconic moments. Um, Paris obviously being the peak, um, but obviously you touched on two thousand and two, um, Betty Vote Sierra. This is something that I, I need to ask. You, you mentioned the relationships and trust that you build with people at mm-hmm. Watersmith and Tommy Burns, etc. That's that's very important. Sometimes a lot of people think there's a perception about the media that it can be too personal with, with some. Mm-hmm. Betty got a lot of criticism now. Don't get me wrong, a lot of the performances were horrific. You know, I remember us going from the high of 1-0 at Hamden to 6-0 a few days later and stuff like that. Um, just see when you get that um, kind of, see when a manager isn't doing very well, at what point do you think, right, we need to put a get out, whoever, or does it start early? I think that part it was always a part I was always a little bit uncomfortable with, you know, like, like um Especially with Barry, I like Barry, uh, and we got on really well. We got on fairly well, and uh, and actually afterwards stayed in touch after he left. But, uh, but as always, the, the son would always be the first one to say, "That's it, you know, Barry must go or whatever." A, a lot because we had an English sports editor, and and he was very clever because he never made contact with any of these people, so he would keep himself completely. You know, so there was never any emotional ties that he had. And we would just go to an editorial conference and I would be sitting there, you know, like I can remember, for instance, with Walter when uh, in the Champions League, they lost 4 0 to Juventus and 4 1 away. So it was 8 1 in aggregate. Uh, and the headline in the sun was Tally's 8, Wally's 1. And I was like, oof, you know, like, you know, and I had to go. And to be fair, well, I laughed at it, you know, like I laughed at it, but it was like, it's a professional pride, that kind of stuff, you know, like the, the time Juventus were full of world-class stars, Rangers weren't in the league, you know, and and, and then the, the Berry one after the Pharaohs, I think, that was a difficult one because I knew the very kind of nature of reporting in the Pharaohs is weird. It's a, it's a strange place. I don't know if you've ever been to the Pharaohs, but it's like, Torshavn is like, it's utterly bizarre. Like, so it's like, you go... You basically land on a rock in the sea. And it's like, uh, when we went the first time, I remember Billy Dodge was playing and stuff like that, and Dodge was a good pal of mine. And we were, we landed, and the guy, and this is not a word I lie, the guy got off, who was flying the plane, and then he put a blazer on because he was one of the guys that was welcoming us from the Pharaoh's FA. <laughs> he was just saying, and there was literally like a brass band there playing us into the airport and all that, and it was just the weirdest place. And when we went there with Scotland and uh, Berry had like, I remember when Walter took over from him, Berry had just like, if you remember some of the players that get capped at that time, you were like, what's happening here? You know, like Robbie Stockdale and like, like you know, Paul Devlin and, you know, I, I remember looking and thinking, you know, obviously it wasn't our greatest era for players, you know, like, and that's not his fault, but I think there could have been, you know, that I just remember hearing the stories, I was close, obviously, with Barry Ferguson and Lambert, uh, Paul Lambert, and 
they were in the middle of midfield that day and they basically took over in, in the dressing room that day because it was a or, or that that's how it came out basically you know because it was a shambles we were 2-0 down at half time I remember the guy I think his name was John Peterson he was a, a school teacher and he yeah. scored a couple of goals against us or two down at half time and then we basically rescued it back to 2-2 but it was clear it was a, it was clear it was a, you know something was, wasn't right and um but Barry was a, like a good coach, you know. Like, like his 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 history on his in his CV suggests that he's a top level coach, which which he was. He went on to manage you know other countries and stuff like that. So, but we did have the like that was it, you know, the puffins and everything on the back page. And I just remember like you know it was pretty savage, uh, and he wasn't used to that kind of thing. But he never ever held it against me personally. He knew it was. You know the paper, but it was like it was. Uh, that was always difficult. Those parts of it were difficult. And when I became head of sport, was always very reluctant to do that. We, we probably calmed down a little bit in that kind of side of thing, because it's difficult to do that and, and maintain your contact. And that had always been my strength was building contacts. And even as it went further on, when I was head of sport, the contacts with Peter Lawwell, uh, with David Murray, and people like that became really important. So how you conducted yourself and how the paper reacted to their bad times was it became fairly important as well. So, no, interesting. But, no, that, to answer your question, I was always pretty uncomfortable with that kind of stuff. It's difficult when you're a, when you're the reporter writing the stories and that's the headline that they put on them. Mm-hmm. It's pretty difficult. Yeah, but I, can, I can imagine because, you know, in, in terms of what I'm doing, you know, I, I just like speaking to people about about football, you know. And, and when I'm, I do some writing for the Tatana magazine as well, and I make the point of letting the people um, who I've interviewed see what I'm writing first before I before I print it. That's obviously different, you know. Newspapers are the next day thing, but yeah, the um, I can I can imagine that um, from your position, you're the reporter, but the headlines are actually written by someone else and probably getting directions from someone else. But the mud sticks, as you know. Oh, exactly. Your name is top and you've got to have a big, like a thick enough skin to, to be able to take that, you know. And that's that's yeah. that's basically that was basically the business for for me when I was chief football writer for Keith Jackson when he was chief football writer of the record. That was what you have to you have to kind of defend whatever stances your bosses take, whether it was James Trainer when he was Keith's boss at the record or Steve Wilsoncroft when he was my boss at the Sun. Yeah. Was the trust good between you and your boss? Um. We, I mean, we all we were always like, I would say we had like a business relationship, you know, like it was, it was inspirational to me as in like he was always kind of pushing me to beat the record. He was desperate to beat the record and that was his dream, it was to beat the record and get more sales. So it was always about, you know, it was he was one of those guys like carrot and a stick, you know, like if, we, if they had a better paper than us one day, I would hear about it that morning. You know, it would be, I look at the story they got this morning, you asleep yesterday, all that kind of stuff, you know. And uh, But then when we got a big one, I would always think he never praised me enough when we got a big one. You know, my biggest story was probably like Roy Keane for Celtic would be one of them. And I remember, and that I went to him that day uh, and Sky Sports had a crew at uh, the Bernabeu that day waiting for Roy Keane. Mm-hmm. Arriving for Real Madrid. Roy Keane was going to sign a six-month contract somewhere to finish his career. You know, he was going to sign like 18 months somewhere when he was leaving Man U. And I had the, I got the West bullet. Uh, it was Celtic. And I remember phoning. And you, you obviously see, you guys see a lot of Gordon Strachan in the media now, mm-hmm. and how uh, 
how sharp you can be and, you know, like the kind of mickey taking and stuff like that. Personally, I loved it. You know, Strachan, yeah. Strachan would never allow a journalist a lazy question, which I liked because there's a lot of lazy journalists uh, out there, you know, who will just say, how's the mood in the camp? All oh, right. What, what, do you, what do you mean? You know, like, like stupid questions. Are you going for all three points? No, nah, we're going to go out there and try and draw. You know, it's like, you know, like Strachan would, uh, would slaughter a, a, a lazy question. But uh, I said, I phoned him up that day. And I said, can I speak to you off the record? And he said, yeah, sure, always. And I was like, right. I said, how, how stupid would I look if I wrote a back page tomorrow saying that Roy Keane's going to sign for Celtic? And he said, not any more stupid than you normally look. <laughs> I, <was> like, <laughs> I said, is that, is that a yes? And he's like, take it whatever way you want. And I was like, an 80% yes. And he's like, I told you, take it whatever way you want. But never at any point in the conversation, that was how this dance went, like never at any point in the conversation did he say to me, don't talk rubbish, that's not happening. Mm-hmm. You know, and I knew it was almost over the line. And sometimes you've basically just got to have the courage of your convictions and go with it. And I remember going to the, the gaffer that day and I said, look, he said, oh, I see from Sky Sports that Real Madrid are signing Roy Keane. I was like, no, no. And he said, what? And he's like, I said, he's signing for Celtic tomorrow. And he's like, no chance. And I was like, no, no, yes. And we had we did front page, back page, all the pages inside you come out. And I was just sitting, and I had a day off the next day, John. And I'm sitting, going, please don't trip over the line, you know, like, because you know with transfers it can it can change in right. a minute. And I remember, as they often did, I always loved that Radio Clyde when they're reading when they're reading stuff out the paper and saying Radio Clyde can bring you the news, <laughs> and they're sitting there with the, the sun reading it bit on the radio, you know. And it was twelve o'clock, and. Uh, Hugh Evans and I are good pals and all that. And, and he said, at 12 o'clock, I was driving somewhere with, with Bruce, my boy, in the car. And uh, he said, uh, Hugh Evans come on to 12 o'clock. And he said, sensational news. You know, Roy Keane is at Parkhead to sign for Celtic. And I just remember kind of jumping around in the car, you know, and beating <laughs> the ball and whatever, you know, because it would go over the line. But uh, that was probably the biggest one. But uh, no, he was like, uh, it, was, it was like a player and probably like a football player and a manager of the relationship. And I wouldn't say we were close, but he kind of... Uh, he always inspired me to kind of get get to the best level I could get to, and and, and he was good at it, you know. Like like uh, like I, I think I got the the football writer of the year thing like three years in a row, mm-hmm. and that was down to him kicking me up the arse every morning to go and get a better story than the record had, you know, absolutely. So, uh, so three years in a row, um, journalist of the year. Um, what were the main stories that got you that, in your opinion? Uh, obviously Keane, Keane for Celtic was one Barry Ferguson returning to Rangers can remember like uh, well, I wrote Barry's book with him and we were close and everything and I, was, I think it was in January I was coming back uh, from a, like a family break in Blair Affle and uh, we used to have like a cabin there and I was coming back like January the 4th or the 5th or whatever and uh I just remember Barry coming on the phone and say, I, I want to come back up the road. I'm going to come back up the road. And I'm thinking, at that point, you know, like when Barry went down there, same for the wrong team as far as I thought, you know. I know the option. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when he, went to, when he went to Blackburn, it was just like, you know, he had so many choices if he'd waited. Julio was in charge at Liverpool. And I always felt like there was a chance to go to Liverpool and there was a chance to go to Everton. But it was soonest. It was absolutely soonest because it was soonest at Blackburn. Uh, as was his hero when he was at Rangers that's what pulled him to Blackburn and he was no disrespect to Blackburn when we went down when he signed I was just like 
I don't know if you've ever been to Blackburn, but it's not like it's a nice, it's an unbelievable training ground. Nice, but the ground and Blackburn and the surrounds of it, it's not the nicest place in the world when you get a chance to go to bigger clubs. Uh, and his his chances at that point were Liverpool, Everton, and, and Blackburn, and he chose Blackburn. And I was, and I was, I remember, <laughs> I was just like, like I'm, he's, he's going, what would you do if it was you? I said, well, I wouldn't be here. <laughs> that's for sure. I wouldn't be because we're looking around Blackburn, and I'm going, I wouldn't be in Blackburn. That's for sure. And uh, no, nah. so he chose uh, he chose Blackburn because of Sunnis, which was um, so that was one of them. I think Blackburn. I'm Barry coming back from Blackburn. Uh, I think in 2007, Keane going to Celtic, and then the 2005, one, um, Ferguson went back to Rangers. By the way, Keane. Then Keane. So that was a 2006 one. Then Roy Keane. And then I think there was a kind of week year where it was basically a collection of stories, like you know, like maybe a few transfer exclusives and a couple of kind of big interviews or stuff like that. Mm-hmm. You got it for uh, the third thing. Excellent. Um, you must you must treasure those awards. Um, press conferences. I want to ask you a wee bit about press conferences. Uh, sometimes they can be mundane affairs, but and some of them can be quite bizarre. What has been the most bizarre press conference that you've attended? Uh, Paul Gascoigne, Paul Gascoigne coming to Rangers, uh, which we kind of conducted walking from the. I honest, honestly, I was an hour away there from probably the biggest exclusive interview I, I could have got because he was actually due to come back, and I'd been speaking. I got a, a basically got a like a, a tip from Walter. Walter was at, was at Wembley watching him play for Japan. Uh, sorry, for England against Japan. And a and a friendly, and all the rumours had been circulating. He was coming to Rangers and all that. And then I spoke to Walter on the Saturday, and, and he said, "Yeah, it's kind of over the line, and you know we're going to get him. He's, I'm going to bring him back up after this game, Japan England." And I was like, "Wow!" And I was in the Sunday Mail at the time. It's a Saturday game, so it was brilliant for our deadline. And uh, I said, "Were you on the plane right after the game?" And he said, "Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm leaving Wembley now." And he's cracking up on the phone and all that. And I'm like. Right, and what plane? And then he told me what plane they were on. And I had it to myself. You know, I'm waiting at Glasgow Airport. And then they never appeared because basically Gaza had gone into some champagne bar after the game and stuff like that. And they were late. And there's a picture, actually, one of my mates over here just sent me it, like, because he'd found it. So there's a picture of me interviewing Gascoigne in the way in in Glasgow Airport. And he's got a peacock suit on. You know, like all different colours and all that, and a Rangers scarf draped around his neck. And, I'm kind of, and it's myself, Kenny McDonald from the News of the World, and Peter Jarden from the uh, the Mail on Sunday. And it's us interviewing him on the way down. But I would have had that in my, if he hadn't gone in for that bottle of champagne. I would have had that one to myself. But that was that was. I just remember it was, it was a bizarre story because I, I honestly, I don't know if he even knew who he was signing for because he kept saying, "I'm looking forward to life playing for Glasgow." And I'm like, Rangers, Rangers. <laughs> like, he couldn't actually, like, and it was just like, and he was, uh, he was a cat, he was brilliant, he was a great guy. You know, I became fairly close, but it was like, uh, it was, uh, that was the most bizarre one, definitely. That was the most, it wasn't even a conference, if you know what I mean. Like, uh, basically just walking from the, walking through departures, as you can imagine, or walking through arrivals at Glasgow Airport, places a zoo, and we're trying to conduct a, an interview on the way to Walter's car. It was, uh, that was probably the most bizarre one, I would say. That sounds like great times. Um, you know, you eventually leave in, in 2015. Um, but what's your thought on 
you mentioned about you know lazy journalists. Um, what about the standard of journalism now? From your opinion, you know, has um, have standards declined in your in your eyes, or um, is that unfair? No, I don't think it is unfair. I think it's different because you know you're, you're in a generation where it sounds like an old guy. You're in a generation where it's sound bites and and you know social media hits and you know maybe a long read for somebody now is four hundred words rather than. That I used to write a thousand words for a match report, night after night on the whistle. You know, night after Champions League night, it was a thousand words. You know, and like now, you know, they want things like four hundred words for a web page or whatever, different type of journalism. You know, and I would never say it's, it's declined massively. I taught at University of West of Scotland uh, after I left the Sun, and I loved it. You know, and and, and worked with a lot of good young journalists there who are uh, on the way up now. But it's like a different type of journalism from the one that. Uh, that I operated and I was lucky enough to start towards the end of the old school where guys like Don Morrison, uh, Dixon Blackstock at the Sunday Mail were my first two colleagues, Hugh Keevans, Ken Gallagher, you know, like lots of like Alec Cameron, Jim Trainer, you know, like lots of, and you know, a lot of people look now with Jim Trainer's uh, role at, at Rangers and all the kind of controversies he's, he's been around. But if you look back to Trainer's writing when he was at the Herald, an extremely good writer, you know, like in uh, lots of guys like that, that, that like I really admired, particularly for me, Ken Gallagher. Ken Gallagher broke from the 60s onwards, he, he broke so many unbelievable transfer stories and he knew everyone, you know, his rela- relationship with Sir Alex and people like that was just like unreal, you know, like like, like very, very, and I suppose the one that's, that's still there and I, I love him a bits is, is Hugh Keevans, who's like a, Hugh Keevans is a, a great human being and very, very funny man. And uh, I, I think it's great he's on Twitter. I've got no idea. He's probably got no idea what he's doing on Twitter, but he's, he, I follow him on Twitter. And he, he's brilliant. Very funny. He's, he's like a national institution these days. Hugh oh, yeah. <laughs> Keevans, he's, he's um, tremendous. Um, I listened to... We called him the old soldier. Uh, when Mark Guidi, <laughs> Gordon Waddle and I were at the Sunday Mail, it was a great team at the Sunday Mail at that point myself. Mark Guidi, uh, Gordon Waddle, and Hugh Keevans was a brilliant mix. Great, great guys. What a laugh we had, honestly. Terrific. Good team. Yeah, can, I can just imagine. Uh, not a lot of people know that whilst you were working with Sun, you were also doing some coaching at that point. I mean, I read that you were at East Kilbride um, in BSC Glasgow. Um, mm. East Kilbride ended a bit um, abruptly, um, despite some success. What happened? I started that. That was basically like... Um, I started coaching because Bruce was at a club called East Kilbride Borough United when he was, I think, probably 2004. He was eight years old, I think. And myself and a guy called James Keane, who uh, I'd known growing up, uh, who's like a multi-millionaire construction uh, kind of tycoon in East Kilbride. Um, James's boy was playing for the team and he said, you know, we should help out with the coaching, we should do something. Uh and I went and I helped out with the coaching. I really liked it. So I started doing my coaching badges at that point, and I'd be, I think I was about, I don't know, late 30s, something like that. And um, yeah, I'd be about 2004, but ah, mid, mid-late 30s, mm-hmm. and just an interested dad coaching. And then uh, about 2007, James spoke to me with the idea of establishing a professional team in East Kilbride, which was our hometown. Uh, would I like to get involved in a project? And, and we got involved. We, we merged two teams 
uh, Jackton, who was the team that both our boys were playing for that we'd started. We started a boys club called Jackton Boys Club. We merged it with another local team called Stuartfield, who had a really good operation uh, and a really good secretary, a guy called Dave McKenna, who was very well uh, organised. Uh, and we merged the teams and we made them into East Kilbride FC. Uh, so that was in like maybe two, about 2010, I think. By the time we got it off the off the ground, we went. We tried a couple of various routes. We were going to take over the local junior team, East Kilbride Thistle, um, but we couldn't get couldn't get any an agreement with that. So we decided we would basically start our own club, as you do. And uh, and then, but he had the money to put behind it. You know, like he had the money behind it. We had a lot of ideas. We had a lot of great people involved. And then we looked at a bit of land at, um, at K Park, which is in Tom's house, uh, basically like in Tom's house country park, uh, called the Glen Country Park, sorry, in East Kilbride, yeah. and the outskirts of East Kilbride, and, and, and James invested the money, we built the stadium, and it went from there. And then in the first season, we were going to go into the south of Scotland League, start slowly, but... I had contacts, obviously, at that point with Stuart Reagan, who was the SFA chief executive at the time, uh, and they were starting the pyramid, uh, which I, I'm a massive believer in the, in the pyramid, huge believer in the pyramid, and I thought it was long overdue. Uh, but obviously, it was like getting up and running. And he eventually said to me one summer, Stuart Reagan phoned me, he said, look, he said, what about this project you're involved in at East Pride? And I said, yeah, we're getting there. And he said, oh, I've been. He said, you know, I've been. Someone showed me the light. We were getting licensing for the ground and stuff. And he said, unbelievable project. Hey, what a great looking stadium it is. And I said, well, thanks, blah, blah, blah. He said, would you like to go into the Lowland League? And I said, well, we're just putting a team together at the end of the South of Scotland League. And he said, no, there's a space in the Lowland League. What about, what about applying for that? So I went to James and James was like, let's go for it. So we're in the space of two weeks. <laughs> We went from south of Scotland, which would have been an easy, an easier league to go into and, and win, to trying to get together a team for the Lowland League. So we had 45 guys in in trial. We put together a squad. And, and I wasn't going to coach it at the, at the start. I was staying in the academy, which is where I was coaching. But the guy, that, the older guy, was a guy called Tommy Livingston that we wanted to take over, decided he wouldn't do it. And basically, I kind of fell into it in the first season. Uh and it was unbelievable. I'd never swap it for, despite what happened at the end of it, I'd never swap it, John, because it was unbelievable. Like we put together, Jim Duffy gave me four players on loan from Clyde, four young guys, uh, Kieran Daw, Gary Graham, Jed Trainer, uh, good players, uh, and Stephen Bronski, who's still playing for Elgin City just now. Uh, great player, Bronski, terrific guy, Bronski. Um, and we had the four of them. Uh, and we just, we had the four of them, and it was all local amateur players after that. And we put together a squad, no wages, no money being paid, apart from what we might be helping Clyde to pay the kids. And they were all 19. Uh, and you had other teams in that league, like Spartans and really well-established teams, obviously. And we won the cup uh, in the first year, which was fantastic. Like, I'll never... Like, being the first manager there means a lot to me. But after it, you know, I think they obviously saw the way it was going to grow. And you were always fighting the stuff that oh he's not a, he's not a coach he's a journalist he's like whatever you know mm. and you were always fighting that and I could have managed myself up, upwards uh, better I think at that point I was kind of single minded on I wanted to look after the boys and make sure that the, the team was looking after but they had other visions of how it could continue mm-hmm. and then uh, we won the cup on the Tuesday myself and Craig Young my, my best mate who's my assistant. And then we get sacked. Uh, we won it on the Saturday. Sorry, we get sacked on the Tuesday. 
so it wasn't great, but <laughs> it wasn't a great ending. But it was like, I mean, I was really still talking all that. I mean, I met like all of them since when I go back, and it was hot at the time. But like, like I say, when you look back in these things and you get older, you're like, everything happens for a reason. Plus, there's always faults on your side. At the time, you think everything's everybody else's fault, but when I look back, you're thinking, mm. I or maybe a bit stubborn there, or you could certainly what I always say to young coaches at the end of the day. If you're in a situation like that and it's someone else's money, you need to respect the guy whose money it is. You know, like, and James and I never had a direct fallout, but there was other people around about it that, you know, like, we, no, I've never had fallouts or that, but it was more like, you know, they disagreed with the way he wanted to take it forward or whatever. It's a shame. But uh, the BSC Glasgow after that was was terrific. Was uh was a great adventure. Uh, and we won the cup again. So it was nice the season after. There's not many people... Uh, and that are many management duos and at that level that have won that cup. It's the Scottish FA Challenge Cup. It's a big cup. You know, there's about 164 teams going at the start, and we won it uh, the second year. And I must admit, there was a petty little bit there in me saying I want to win it with somebody else. And BSC were terrific. George Fraser and the guys there. It's been amazing to see how that club's grown and yeah. to see them go and play against Hibs in the Scottish Cup and all that this year with Stephen Swift in charge doing a brilliant job there. You're like really good for me. I mean, I never let, like, the, we were on three-year contracts when I left to go to Airdrie, which was always a, a, a regret that I had to leave because they get, rather than that time after we won the Cup, it was myself, Craig again as assistant coach and Ali Graham, who was like 600 games in the in the pro game or whatever, that big Ali, and uh, he was a to this show. <laughs> Ali's, Ali's, a, Ali's a gentleman, right? Great guy. Again, somebody we grew up with. Ali was like... Uh, pals when we were kids and um, we had three year contracts at BSC but I got offered the everything and uh, you had to take it you know it was a way any pro football so I took that Same thing as the uh, East Kilbride is it true that they asked you to write your own press release about your sacking? I <laughs> was just like that's the thing about like journalism's a skill that always uh, follows you if you know what I mean even now like I do the club website here and uh, the journalism for the club website in Toronto here you know and people discover you can do it and it's always a handy thing to have and all that kind of stuff but uh, no the, the club said at one point because I did all the press releases and they said uh, we're going to have to write a press release about this and I was like alright they said would you do it and I was like sorry <laughs> No, they get a short, a short answer to that one. No, I, don't know. I said no, I'm not going to write that. You're all right. Thanks very much. <laughs> yeah. Looking back at it, then, like if, if we if we'd both been able to take a breath, I remember, like, I mean, the players were in tears and everything. It was horrible, a horrible kind of night that the night we get sacked. But uh, if we don't, if experience now would tell you to take a breath and take a step back, because look at the quality of people that have come in after that. I mean, I look at Wikipedia every now and again when they get when they get a new manager. Billy Stark, Stevie Aitken, you know, like the guys that have been in there and managed since, I'm not in that league, you know, like, and it's nice to see yourself in the list, you know, so I'll always be there in the list as the first one and, and we won the first cup and I don't, you can never, I've never coached a better team than that, I've never coached a better team of boys, they were amazing, they were a great team of boys and they punched so far above the weight that season, it was unreal, but uh, never be able to change that, but if you could have taken a breath now, I could have taken a step back probably and and worked in the academy, which was I was maybe better suited to at that point. But uh, live and learn, live and learn, man. Yeah, definitely. Stevie Aitken, I think, is a really oh. strong appointment for that level. I mean, um, he worked wonders with Dumbarton, in my opinion, and um, they 
not as not of intent beating Kelty Hearts a couple of weeks ago. Um, Kelty, along with Brora, were were robbed of a promotion playoff um, against Brecon. I still think there's some smells about that, but um, I'll not spread. I'll not. Um, it's just a hunch. I mean, what to that level? The people, the people at Brecon should always be thankful that they've got someone like Ken Ferguson battling the corner. A very clever man, uh, well connected, and all that. And but like you, I, I watched that from afar, and and I know how much coaching means to Barry, uh, uh, and and how much he deserved the shot again into the league with Kelty Hearts, and obviously same with the people at Brora. It's a disgrace. It's, it's just wrong, you know. It, it's wrong, just wrong. Yeah, totally. Um, so you went to Airdrie as a chief executive. How did that role come about? Well, again, there was a link there through Barry. I got to know a guy called Tom Wallace, been a businessman through Barry when I was doing Barry's book. And um, we uh, we used to do Barry's book. At, uh, I don't know if you remember, or if you were, make nobody your area, but there's a, there's a, a restaurant called Spice. And uh, there's one in East Kilbride and there's one in Hamilton. Uh, and a guy who owned it, a guy called Aki, who was a pal of mine, I love it to Lancashire, by the way, but I don't know the specifics. Spice is nearly Spice. The one in Hamilton is nearly racecourse, and uh, ah yeah, mm-hmm. we're in there on, the, on that road, and um, so he had a bar up the stairs, and it was quiet, and you could go and have a pint and all that. Like it was like a private bar, and we had a pool table. And we used to go up there and watch Champions League games and stuff like that. And uh, Barry and I would go early and do a chapter of the book, have a couple of pints, watch a Champions League game, play pool, whatever, and. Um, Guy Tom was was there uh, a lot of the time, and I got to know him through Barry. We went on a holiday together at one point, golfing in Portugal and stuff like that. Uh, when we were finishing the book, and uh, I just got to know him pretty well. And, and and he said, "I'd love to buy a team at one day. I'd love to buy a club." And he said, uh, "Are you always going to work in newspapers?" And I was like, I, said, "I don't really know." I said, "Newspapers are dying." I said, "I need to think what I'm going to do for the rest of my life." And we could have hung on, but I was like, I was thinking, oh. I'd been in it 30 years at that point, and it was high pressure, John. You know, like, I, I think, like, people underestimate that. When you're doing a daily deadline every day, you know, 7.45 at night, you know, getting home late and whatever, and it owns your life. You know, for, like, 30 years, it was from 18 to 48, it kind of been my life, uh, trying to beat the record, trying to get a scoop, trying to get a story, you know, all that kind of stuff. And... I wouldn't say I was burnt out, but I was just kind of looking and thinking, am I going to do this for the rest of my life? By that point... I had my A license with my coach and I loved I loved my coaching and I'd been thinking, could I get involved in football full time, you know, on the other side of it? Not as a, a coach, but I was thinking, could I use my business experience and something? And then that, that chance came up. He decided he was going to buy Airdrie and he said, Do you want to do you want to go in as uh, chief exec? And I was like, Oh, absolutely, I'd do that in a heartbeat. And actually which was my, my own fault, I went in with a contract, which was a mistake. And uh, <laughs> Uh, just because I wanted to do it, and uh, life's like that sometimes, right? I was like, you look, and like I was saying to you before we came on here, like there was a chance to take a, a redundancy deal at the Sun that might never be there again, because they were looking to, they were basically looking to get rid of all the big earners and all the people at the top, and I was like, oh, I could feel the kind of <laughs> the chilly wind in my back, and I was thinking maybe I should just take one of these deals, you know? And I thought, right, so I took it, I took the deal. Perfect timing. Uh, I remember we had a, like a a really good uh, leaving doing the West End of Glasgow, and then took up took up the the Airdrie job. And 
And I would never, like, again, there's part of that story that's heartbreaking. Uh, I would never swap the experience. I mean, I learned a lot and I made a million mistakes uh, in that job, but but we did sort of a lot of stuff that I thought that's trying to get resurrected now, you know, like full time. I, I think there's a, there's a way to make clubs like that full time. Uh, a hybrid way, if you can get younger pros on apprenticeships, like, you know, we, we tried to get an apprenticeship scheme running uh, with one of the local colleges so they could go to college during the day and then train as well uh, and basically be full time professional players, but for less wages, if you know what I mean. Uh, and we got that running pretty well. We graduated nine kids from the academy. Um, but it was always at that point, I don't think Gary Bowen was the manager and, and Tom didn't really fancy him as a manager. He didn't really fancy the way he operated and he wanted, I think it was always in Tom's mind that he wanted someone different, you know, like to, and in my opinion, and it's still one of my, my opinion at the minute, uh, the best one of the best coaches I'd ever like known or worked with was Eddie Wolecki Black at uh, Glasgow City. Um, and I've never, it's never been anything in my mind that he coached a women's team or, or whatever. Couldn't care less. Didn't bother exactly. me. Unbelievable coach. Unbelievable coach. And a great guy. Uh, a friend of mine, my daughter sang at uh, his wedding to, to Emma uh, in Gibraltar. We were great pals and whatever. And, and I kind of looked upon him as a mentor coaching-wise. You know, when I left East Bride, I was on really low. And I remember two guys helped me out, to be honest. It was Eddie brought me in to work with Glasgow City under-17s. Uh, first time I'd coached girls, which which I do out here in Toronto now uh, a lot of the time as well. But first time I'd been involved with coaching girls. I uh, really enjoyed it. And Scott Leach at Motherwell uh, was the other one who brought me in to work with him. Uh, coach Motherwell under 15s at the time, and that was a massive boost just to your, just to your ego, you know, to get to get asked to go and pro to go and work with Andy Smith and Scott Leach, Willie Pettigrew, Stevie Cadden, the guys that were working at Motherwell at the time. It's a fantastic academy, Motherwell, and uh, I meant a lot to me at the time. I was the dumbest guy in the room by a mile uh, at that academy. I learned so much in the, the months I was there, and. Um, but Eddie and Eddie was great to me that summer, and I always stuck in my mind. And you know, we were good pals. I'd had him as a columnist at the Sun because I thought he was like a bit different. And we had him as a columnist at the Sun. And then when we left, it was always in my mind. You know, if I if I got into a position where I could get him uh, involved in in men's football, then I would I would use any influence I could get. And uh, we had the chance at Airdrie, and, and we brought him in as head coach. We brought him in as head coach, and Kevin Harper as the under-20s coach. And, and I think it would have been really exciting times. And we got to the playoffs uh, at Cowdenbeath. Uh, we were at Cowdenbeath and we were in the playoff positions. Uh, never forget, we just signed Jordan Thompson from Rangers on loan. Uh, David Weir was at Rangers and with Warburton at the time. And it helped me out. You know, I just phoned up because he was a contact from, uh, from my journalism days. And I was like, look, we need a midfielder, creative midfielder. He said, well, we want to put Jordan Thompson it. And I was like, oh, Jordan Thompson, four years at Man United, Northern Ireland International. And I'm thinking, I wonder if we can get him to Airdrie, you know? And and it was basically, he said to me, how much can you afford to pay? And I was like, oh, we're probably about 100 quid a week. <laughs> and he was like, are you like, you he's like, can you, are you at it? And I was like, no, I'm a big man. I'm not really good. I'm not really good at that. And he's like, 
Aye, all right then. So we basically got Jordan Thompson for a hundred quid a week, and uh, and uh, but we still got slaughtered because I remember we dropped uh, Eddie dropped uh, a kid called Liam Watt, who's a really, really good player, Liam, and uh, we'd been in the the lower like lower reach. He's doing really well, and but he was the kind of Airdrie fans loved him, and he dropped him for Thompson, and uh, we were getting slaughtered. You know, we were getting absolute pelters, and we went to Cowden Beath that day, and. Uh, it was a horrible, horrible pitch. Horrible. I mean, Central Park's never the best, the best of times, but this was like March, and it was sodden and sandy and all that. And Jordan just picked the ball up thirty yards out, danced by a couple of players, smacked it top corner. And I just remember thinking, brilliant, you know, we're going to win this game, you know, like right in the playoff places. And just as Eddie came off the field, I was in his wife Emma was pregnant, and I was sitting next to Emma in the stand, and he came off. I just looked at his eyes, John. You know, his eyes were like, yeah. Uh, it looked as if he's been crying. And I was kind of thinking, Gaffer looks under pressure there, you know, not looking good. I just thought it looks a bit odd. Never thought anything more of it. And it was actually Donald Finlay uh, grabbed my back and, and in the middle of half time. And he just said, you need to come downstairs. You need to get downstairs. And I was like, he said, one of your staff's ill. And I thought it was Jim Frame, our, our kit man, you know, who'd, who'd been suffering a lot of ill health. And I kind of ran downstairs at Central Park looking for Framey. And actually... The, the locker room at, uh, at at Central Park's got like an ante room before you go into the dressing room. And I, I actually went past the commotion, which was on my right hand side. There's a guy lying on the floor, and I went and I went into the dressing room. Said to, uh, I think it was Big Sean Crichton. I was like, "What's happening? What's happening? Where's Framey?" And, and he said, "No, it's a gaffer." And I looked back, John, and he like Eddie was lying on the floor, one side of his face all down, like a stroke, had a stroke, and and it was. And he almost died in the dressing room floor that day. And it was like it was horrendous, just horrendous when it's your mate and someone that you put in, like you've been a, like a driving force and getting him into that position. And I knew how much he wanted that job and how much pressure he was putting himself under to, for Airdrie to be successful. It was horrible, horrible. And Emma's there pregnant with Sophia. And oh, it was a horrendous day, horrendous day. And we nearly lost on that night. He had another brain bleed at the hospital. Blue flashing lights, all that, uh, and he came. He came through it, you know. He came through it. He's he's he lost obviously his left side, and um, but he came through it to go back and coach Celtic ladies and then Motherwell, uh, Motherwell ladies and stuff like that, Motherwell women's team. But that was like looking back now, like you know, it ended after that, like Airdrie badly, you know, because promises were made to Eddie that, that weren't kept. That that stuck in my throat, and there was various kind of mistakes that year. I found honestly, I was just learning how to do the job. But you need more time to learn how to do a job like that than one year. Uh-huh. And I ended up we missed the we missed the playoffs by one point in the final game of the season, I think. And then that summer we were still all we'd, we'd set up to go full time at Ravenscraig. We were taking the you know, the, the, the office in there and all that kind of stuff. We were going to be training there full time. Uh, I had Andy Goreman as goalkeeping coach by that point. Uh, and we were all ready to go and I just got a call to go into the office and uh, we had a full and frank exchange of words or something like maybe you shouldn't work with your pals. We had a, we had a full exchange of uh, views about what had gone on and uh, we parted company and that was that. So, 
So I know hard. It was hard that, you know, but as I say, I'm glad, like if I hadn't left the sun, I would never have had the kind of adventures, if you know what I mean, and, and done that kind of stuff. And it was, it was, I remember one night we went up and we were live on the telly on a Friday night at Dunfermline. And Eddie, I'd watched all the, the training sessions that week. They were a different level, just about how we, we could tactically, and we've got no right to go to Dunfermline when they'd so much more money than we had. And we went and we, we played them off the park. They were brilliant and we won 1 0. And Tom was behind the goals that night, and, and I know he enjoyed himself better behind the goals with the punters than he did ever been near the boardroom. So I did the boardroom stuff uh, with Jim Ballantyne and stuff like that. And I just remember like looking about Dunfermline, which is a great historic club, mm-hmm. and how well he had done that night, you know, tactically. And they were all saying to me, oh, he's a women's coach and he's this and he's that. Well, he was brilliant coaching, honestly. His coaching knowledge is terrific. And that was a clinic. <laughs> Friday night, and I remember thinking, "Nanny, this is going to be amazing." And it just shows you, right? You know, life. Every every now and again, uh, man plans, God laughs, right? You know. So, like in the March, uh, that happened, and I'm I'm just happy Eddie's still with us. You know, that's the, that's the main thing. Yeah, that is that is the main thing that he's there with his wife and his daughter, and he's um, back coaching as you mentioned with Mother these days. So, um, yeah, good luck to Eddie going forward. Uh, with regards to yourself, you ended up, what what led you going out to Canada? Toronto. Um, came here like obviously I said with the job you're lucky enough to travel a lot, you know, and with obviously I've got a lot of family in Canada. My dad's brother emigrated here back in the sixties, so. I'd always came here on holiday a lot, uh, and I just love the city. I mean, I love uh, North American sports and stuff like that. So like, uh, to be in a city where you've got the Raptors basketball, which I love, TFC, with the so- I can call it soccer because I'm in Toronto now. So you've got TFC with the soccer, you've got uh, the Maple Leafs ice hockey, you've got Marley's, which is the other ice hockey, the Maple Leafs feeder team. You've got the Argonauts, which is Canadian football. You've got like so many different sports here, you know. And uh, and I came like somebody asked me like once top five cities, and I was always like Toronto, Toronto, because there's everything here, you know. There's the a the sports. It's an unbelievable city down at Lakeshore. So nice. We live like ten minutes from the beach. It's just such a nice city. And by that point, the kids are up. My kids are like twenty seven. Caitlin's twenty seven. She's in Nova Scotia now. She's over here in Halifax. Uh, my son's just graduated university at home from University of Stirling. So the kids are kind of up, and I was kind of like, well, this would be the chance to... Uh, people had told me there was a chance, if you're a good-level coach, to coach full-time here and do it as a full-time job. And I was like, oh, give it a try, put in a couple of applications. And it was honestly, the second application was with North Toronto Nitros, and it was an Irish guy, John Highland, who was... Uh, the TD at that time. It's a Scottish guy now called Billy Wilson, but it's like uh, an Irish guy then. And he just asked me to do a, a Skype call, uh, um, go through the CV. And, and then he basically, a week later, he phoned me back and offered me a job. Wow. So, which was, at that point, I'm 50 years well, I was 49 at the time. And uh, I was kind of thinking to myself, this, this is kind of mad, you know, should I go and do this? But then, 2017 at that point, March 2017 when I came, and I was just like, well, you only get one chance at this, you know, you're only, we'll give it a go, and we both wanted, my wife's a journalist as well, she wanted to to work in an animal hospital and do her kind of dream job now that the kids are up, so 
she did that. I've done that. I'm still here. So it's like, uh, and it's a great club, a terrific club, and I love that. It's a privilege being able to coach full time. Uh, with good level players, and I'm kind of on on the field 20 hours a week, and then off the field doing my admin and stuff like that 20 hours a week. So it's a great job, you know. Like I can't. I've been lucky. I've done two careers now and. I've never worked a day in my life. <laughs> so <laughs> both, both jobs have been jobs that I've loved, John. So I, and I think if you do something you love, you're you're pretty blessed. So I'm quite happy yeah. with that. No, definitely. If you've got if you've got the passion, that's uh, more than half the battle. Um, when you're in that kind of job, and uh, can I just um, I've read a wee bit about the Toronto Nitros. Why was that mm-hmm. two year hiatus from league football? Oh, the, the League One team. So here, like when you go, uh, when I came here at first. Um, League One was the highest level that you could play at. So it's basically more a top-level youth club. You know what I mean? We've got 5,000. It runs so differently from Scotland, it's hard to kind of describe to people. So we've got 5,200 players across the team, you know, and then across the teams, and you've got 11 full-time coaches. So it's a massive franchise, you know, So and we train at, like, various sites throughout Toronto. So basically, you've got three different types. Of, you've got your provincial teams, your regional teams, and your district teams. So there's three levels of it. And the top level after that became League One, which is now called our college prep program, where we we basically play in League One, which is a good level, kind of probably maybe a little, probably a bit lowland league level, something like that, lowland league level standard. And they've now brought in now the Canadian Premier League, which is above that which in the Canadian Premier League is probably your feeder towards MLS. So so we we were out of League One for a couple of years, basically because it's an expensive undertaking to to be in it, if you know what I mean. So And because you've got that North American model here where it's a franchise, you can basically just come back in once you've decided that you're in good shape. So they they had other priorities at the club for a a couple of years, so they stayed out of League One and now they're back in. All right, cool. So it's college prep programme, so this year, give you an idea, the girls team just graduated. So the girls team who just graduated, we put 16 players into the NCAA system in the States, which is unbelievable. You know, like that's like Division One schools in the States are massive. So we, out of that 16, I think 10 of them have gone to Division One, which is just frightening. You know, it's great. That's the rewards you get. You're changing kids' lives then. You know, if they get a free ride scholarship to the States, that's like $160,000 and their whole education is being paid for by being a good soccer player, which is which is scary, right? You know, that, that's you've done your job. Uh, so there's different ways. But the boys, the male ones, we've got some terrific players, and I'm, I'm always trying to kind of push some of them towards. <laughs> you know, I, I stay in touch with guys like James McPake and all that, and he's always saying to me, the any decent ones that can come to Dundee and Charlie Adam and guys like, you know, send one to Dundee. But the men are like, our male players are, are decent. There's a, a kid called Anthony Adam Ontario who's uh, been on trial in Serie B and stuff like that. So we've got good players. We've got one called Juan Pablo Delgadillo, who's in Mexico City at the moment, uh, trialing for teams there. So it's interesting, right? It's a totally different uh, totally different way of setting up a club. Yeah, obviously it's, it's different cultures. Um, but in terms of can, um, the standards of Canadian football, Canada does never qualify for a World Cup. They will definitely be in a World Cup in 2026 because they're co-hosting with um, USA and Mexico. What is the standard of football like out there? I think, you know, like like any uh, 
like any when you come to a different country, you've got to adapt to their country. That's what I've always thought. And mm-hmm. and the one thing here is learning that you're not the top sport. You know, hockey's king here, and hockey's yeah. always going to be king. And even in in Toronto, when I came at first, you know, we would go and see TFC with my daughter. Uh, BMO, where TFC plays, beautiful. It's on Lakeshore. It's right looking out on Lake Ontario. Great stadium. And Sebastian Giovinco was here. So Giovinco is one of the few players I've seen signed for MLS when he's in his prime. You know, he was 27 years old when he came from Juventus to, to Toronto. So you're looking at that and I'm like, wow, let's go and watch him. You know, and Altidore's here. Josie Altidore's here. Michael Bradley. You know, so there's good players at, at TFC. As for the standard, like, it helps here now that Davies has, has been such a hit at Bayern Munich. Because you've got a you've got a poster child, you know, like so Alfonso Davies when he went to Bayern from here, people were saying thirteen million euros, that's too much. Look at him now. You know, I mean he's a Champions League winner. Uh, the last time I looked at a transfer tracker, they've got him on it, maybe 120 million euros. He's one of the top ten rated young players in, in Europe. So Davies has been massive, John, to be honest. You know, it gives you like if I'm coaching young kids now, I can say like, oh, do you know what it'd be like Alfonso Davies and all that? And a lot of the jerseys here are Davies buying jerseys or, or whatever. So to have someone like him, you know, on top of the the big profile here is really with the women's team because the women's team are top five in the world. So Christine Sinclair, who's the highest scoring international player in history, you know, 185 goals over that now, I think, for, for Canada. Uh, it's a world record. So she's the kind of poster girl for the for the women's side of it, and and Dave, but they needed a player, you know. Davies is what they needed. They needed a player that you can hang your hat on. He's 19, 20 years old. He's going to be there for like you know another ten years at Bayern. So someone like that, they needed a world superstar player uh, that they could help with the profile of the game, and I think that will help massively uh, towards twenty twenty six. And I think they get ten games. And there's some in Toronto anyway, so hopefully I'll get some tickets for that and and be at that. But no, the, the standard, the CPL is definitely, I think the CPL would be around maybe Scottish League One. Scottish League One, bottom of the championship, maybe that kind of standard, I would say, or championship, maybe around that, CPL teams. And there's eight franchises in that now. And then you've got USL where Neil Collins, who's Scottish, yeah. uh, got to the final just there uh, with Tampa Bay Rowdies. And then you've got MLS, which is where, obviously, Johnny Russell's at uh, Sporting Kansas City, Lewis Morgan at Inter-Miami at the Beckham franchise. So MLS, I've, I've got used to watching MLS. MLS is good if the, if the designated players are playing. When the designated players are not playing, it can be a pretty ordinary league to watch, but like uh, the designated players are, if you look at Inter Miami, you've got Lewis Morgan, Higuain. You know, there's there's players here, right? There's players in, but it's it's getting them at the right time, and not when they're here for like maybe one more party before they retire. Yeah, definitely. And you know, you obviously bringing up youth players, which is um, key. So hopefully, from your point of view, you get a, f- a few players that go into bigger and better things, whether it's going on MLS or out or, or out to Europe. Um, yeah. You can definitely say that's a, a good job done if you manage to do that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, we just graduated our first one at the TFC first team, which is uh, from the club, which was was brilliant. You know, a kid called Ralph Prizo who was. 
And when you watch kids like that, he had zero. He was like uh, raised and mentored by another coach at our club, uh, Herman Herman Kingy, who was like a Cameroonian World Cup player, which is like. So you get to meet guys like that, you know. And Herman did an amazing job on this kid. His name's Ralph Prizo. They played. Uh, he played alongside Michael Bradley in the last the last couple of games for TFC. I mean, you watch a kid like that who's come through your academy, it's terrific, you know, it's terrific to see them at, at that level, especially playing with someone like Bradley, you know, who's obviously like a legend here. So no, that, that kind of thing is good. But that's 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 got to be to be honest though, John, like one percent of them are going to do that. You know, like it's the other ninety nine percent that you're meeting better players and, and here they there's a, like a different culture where they'll train three times a week, even at our regional teams train three times a week and play a game at the weekend. So, like, you know, the the provincial teams train four times a week and play a game at the weekend. You know, and it's, it's pay-to-play, which is different from home. You know, like, I mean, I never... I think at home we used to just play a pair of subs to the youth club when I was there. I know, I know it does probably pay now, but not, not anything like they pay here. You know, like, yeah. like uh, at top level here in provincial, the parents will pay $5,200 a season or whatever, something like that. And that's why they afford full-time coaches, right? So that's why... So at home, I could never do this kind of job at home. The culture's just not there for it, you know? Yeah, hopefully that'll come over one day. How long that'll be, I don't know. Um, yeah, yeah, certainly hope so. Um, and you mentioned your North, North American Scottish Coaches Association. Um, you do a couple of Zoom calls. I understand you've got Kevin Harper coming up um, oh, yeah. tomorrow as we speak. We're recording this on Thursday night. Um, just how did that all come about? Oh, that was like a guy, there's a guy called uh, Eric McAleer, who's a Scot, who played in Scotland, a uh, good level player, played uh, in the Toulon tournament and stuff like that for Scotland. Oh, and Eric's a big pal of Davey Moyes and, and, and various guys like that. And I met him, uh, he, he, he owned a company, or he owns a company called World Strides, uh, which is like um, tours for soccer teams and stuff like that, you know, like who are wanting to travel to Britain or travel around North America or go and do a tour and stuff like that. And we were talking about that, and then and then we made one try at it at one point to, to launch, because there's 300 of us out here now who are in various places across America and Canada, Scottish guys who are coaching, Scottish women who are coaching at the top level. You know, we've got, like, uh, so we started looking at it, you know, like looking at, um, and then we met at the convention. They have a United Soccer Coaches convention here, and there was a few of us there with Jim Fleeton and the, the SFA guys in Philadelphia a couple of years back. And we just got talking about it. I just remember the like uh, oh, the the girls and the guys around the table were sitting talking and we're thinking we should get something together, you know, we should try and find a way to we can all help each other, network, stuff like that. And that idea was kind of born about NASCAR, about like North American Scottish Coaches Association. And during lockdown there it was it was amazing. We did uh, a national team speaker series with Walter, Gordon Strachan, uh Craig Brown, Shelley Kerr, brilliant. You know, it went really well, and, and, and every Friday it was it was helping. So, so we just kept it going. We've kept it going. We've got Davey Weir, we've got Kevin Harper tomorrow, uh, and then we help each other when it comes to stuff like if there's a young Scottish coach coming out to North America, then we'll help them with like you know advice on visas, advice on their green card if it's America, you know. Like uh, we can put them in touch with female mentors if 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 it's a you know a young female coach that's coming out that needs help with other stuff you know going into that kind of area of coaching or so we've we've been able to do a lot of stuff like that and uh, 
it's gone really, really well. And and it's just uh, the one thing you miss out here is the banter and the, you know what I mean, the Mickey taking and whatever. So it's nice every Friday to go on a call or whatever and just have a uh, have a laugh, you know. And, and, and certainly last week's one with Deary Weir was brilliant. You know, he was really, really good. And uh, and I was just, you miss the, I'm not saying they've not got a sense of humour in North America, but it's not the same as our sense of humour. <laughs> no, no, definitely not. And sometimes you need your, your home comforts and reminiscing the good days um, the Scottish football. Exactly. It makes me feel old because one of our, one of our main guys is uh, uh, Johnny Burns, who's Tommy's son, who's, uh, who's the TD at Florida Celtic. He's the technical director at Florida Celtic. And, you know, and it makes you feel old when you're talking to, uh, to Johnny and all that and, and thinking about his old man, you know. <laughs> yeah, definitely. But um, no, that, that that was a great insight. I've just got a few quick fire questions to surround off. Ina, thank you for the time you've given me. Um, oh, so first of all, um, you're out in Canada. What's the best beer in Canada? Mill Street Organic. Absolutely, that's my one of course. It's fantastic lager. It's brilliant. Yeah. Do you say that's better than anything that you've had in Scotland? Like tenants, etc. Oh no, every every now and again, I absolutely crave a pint of tenants lager. But you can get it here. It just doesn't quite uh, taste the same. You have to go to the Caledonian Bar in Toronto to get it, but uh, you can still get it. Oh, that's that's good. What do you miss most about Scotland? My son at the moment. I've not seen him since uh, last Christmas because of COVID. Uh, we miss him a lot. You know, I think we miss him a lot. But in, in, in terms of stuff that I miss, I miss, uh, I miss the banter. I definitely miss that, that kind of side of it. You know, I still stay in touch with everybody my my best mate Craig Young and I are uh, in in constant touch all the time. Still, miss that kind of banter in the in the locker room for when you were going in like in the Lowland League nights at, at East Kilbride or BSC and all that. You know, like it's different obviously when you're coaching kids. Still got it a little bit with the older ones, but uh, I miss that part, uh, the sense of humour. I, I would say. Good. Uh, we like our pie chat in this um, podcast. What's your favourite pie? From home or for here? Both. Oh. <laughs> From home, without doubt, was a Kelly pie. I used to like just wait for the wait for the fixture lists all the time, so I could get that steak and kidney one at Kelly. You know, I loved that. Nice. Like the Kelly pie was just the top quality. Uh, so I just used to wait and see like what game you were getting at the weekend, and then if it was coming on, it was always buzzing because it was like you know uh, my wife's from Ayrshire and all that, so that was part of it. But I mean, I could go down there. We might have a night out with our pals after, but uh, I also meant I could get a Kelly pie at the games, and I loved the Kelly pies. The Kelly pies were the best mm-hmm. here. Uh, well, we just had one at the weekend, I'm trying to think. Now, here it would have to be a dessert. Key lime pie. Key lime pie. Key yeah. lime pie. Yeah. <laughs> what, what is the main, um, sorry, soccer food, um, if you go to a soccer ground in, in Canada? Main soccer food? Uh, hot dogs. Hot dogs. <laughs> I would say generally, generally hot dogs. But honestly, at TFC, it's like you're going to like a gourmet restaurant. It's unbelievable. <laughs> they, they, they make up, obviously they make a massive... If you've ever been to North America, you know how, how well they do with their uh, uh, their game food. It's called game food, you know, your game food. I, I love wings, and uh, you make a mess of yourself with any flavour of wings at the game, you know, that kind of stuff. So I generally, like, when I'm watching, like, that Scotland game, I had uh, my uh, one of choice is chilli and lime wings. So I had chilli and lime wings, and then I was on another yes. lager called Ellis, which is uh, Ellis Wellington Lager, which is the best. So that, that's uh, pretty good. So wings now, wings are wings are good. You're probably going to be the only Scot that um, had chili and lime wings watching a Scotland game. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like there'll be guys at home going, "You've changed, Kenny. Jesus, you've changed." <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, what, should, what would your death row meal be? Oof. Probably chili ling wings. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. steak and kidney pie? Uh, and a kidney pie. No, that may be... Uh, do you know what? It would be my local, I, I live in a place, I live in Greek town, believe it or not. I live in the, uh, the Danforth, uh, which is East End of Toronto. Uh, and my local's called the Edmund Park, and they do have those chili and lime wings and fries and a pint of Hellas Lager. That would probably be it. That would be, that would do it. Perfect. Um, so obviously years 2020, um, Scotland will need a song um, for, for the tournament. What artist would you want to pen the Euro 2020 song? Oh, good question. I think we're going to be fed up with Yes or I Can Boogie by that point, aren't we? <laughs> by the time we get to the finals, we may be fed up with that. If it was Scottish, I would go for James Grant uh, from Love and Money because he was my, uh, like, he's one of my, Love and Money are, like, my favourite band from, like, one of my favourite bands from growing up and feeling that Scottish one. I think James Grant's a genius. So I'd probably go for uh, James Grant from Love and Money. Yeah, I just hope they don't have don't come home too soon because a home nation uh, tournament effectively. So, um, yeah. in, anything that can say that to the bin would be good. Um, so, final question. Um, I'm gonna ask. I usually ask for best eleven of people. Um, I didn't. I've not done that with you. I'm gonna ask you something different. Name a five a side team of fellow journalist peers. Oof. Fellow journalist peers dropped that one on me. Definitely Ken Gallagher. Was he playing in goal or was he playing outfield? Oh no, but could only be one goalie because we actually had a goalie. So my goalie would be Mark Guidi because Mark Guidi actually signed pro as a goalie. I did it. St Mirren, I think. Oh, Squeegee was an unbelievable goalie, very good goalie, uh, and funny guy and all, brilliant, brilliant guy, funny guy in the locker. In the, I was going to say locker room dressing room, right? <laughs> uh, I'd, so I would definitely go for Squeegee and go. I go for Mark, Mark Guidi and go. Uh, I'd certainly have. Ken Gallagher in there just because he's, he's a legend and a, and a mentor so I'd have him in there I think I'd have to go for I better say I better put Robert Grieve in there at some point of the sun because I did appoint him and I did appoint him to succeed me as chief football writer he's actually not the best at football to be fair I hope he listens to this he'll hate it because uh, when we played in the media team uh, we'll tag him in Twitter <laughs> because we, we, when we played in the media team we used to call him first man greed because he always had the first man with the cross so we'll just put him in we'll definitely have him in there uh, I can't pick myself can I not I'm not in it so let's see so that's three right I would go I'd have we to do the goalie yeah, Squidgy, Squidgy would definitely be the goalie. Ken Gallagher, Robert Grieve. I'd have to have Andy Devlin for the Sun in there as well because uh, he was another one of the ones that I, he's actually not a bad football player and a huge Motherwell fan. Massive yeah. Motherwell fan. He's actually got a Motherwell tattoo. He'll not like me revealing that, but he's got a big Motherwell tattoo. <laughs> so he's, uh, I used to love it when people said they hated Motherwell and stuff like that, and I knew the truth, but there you go. So we'd have Andy Devlin in there and... Uh, that's too many Sun players. Players now. I'd have to put in. Do you know what? I'd have to put. I'd have to put Keith Jackson in there. I'd put Keith Jackson in there because uh, we we travelled the world uh, fighting against each other for for stories and stuff like that, and stitched each other up a, a million times. You know, for exclusive stuff or whatever. But he was always like, uh, if you if you're in any kind of industry, you always want to 
fight against somebody you've got respect for, and he and he was good. He was good at getting stories, and I and you know what, I kind of I kind of admire the fact that he's still in it. You know what I mean? All these years, I've I've been out there now for whatever it is, five years, and he's still battling away trying to get exclusives and working at the working at the record and dedicating himself to it. So uh, I put Jack on there. That's what we'll go. We'll go. We'll go. Mark Guidi, Ken Gallagher, Robert Greve, Andy Devlin, and Keith Jackson. I think Keith Jackson's part of the Dale Ricker furniture now. And are you managing that team, or are you giving it to Hugh Keevans? Hugh Keevans would be. Uh, he would be your director of football. <laughs> I think he would have to be like a, a director of football, uh, and he could do all the press conferences. And I would just go to coach. I would love to coach them because <laughs> so many. There's so many egos in that dressing room. It's unbelievable, but it'd be a good, it'd be a good, uh, it'd be a good laugh coach in the manner. Yeah, definitely. I don't think we'll ever see that, um, to be honest. <laughs> but you just never know. But listen, Ian, thanks very much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. A good laugh. And um, you stay safe and um, all the best um, out there in Canada. I will do. Thanks, John. And all the best to you and the family. Stay safe, mate. Take care. <laughs>